you're sitting, if you grab your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 3 with me this morning. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3, as we continue our, our study uh, of this pretty amazing book. Um, so, so let me ask you a question. Um, when you first get to meet somebody, how, how do you get to know them? How do you get to understand who they are and, you know, just some... You know, not the basic stuff, like, okay, you know, I know you, I know where you work, I know how many children you have, I know how many brothers and sisters you have, I know where you live. I mean, but on a much deeper level, when you want to really get to understand who somebody is, may I make a suggestion? One way is to go to someone's home, being invited, of course, that's usually a good start, and look in their junk drawer. Now, does somebody in here not have a junk drawer? Okay, good, that makes me... Yeah, see, some people are just so organized. That's what it is. I, I have a junk drawer. I actually have two junk drawers. They're not both full. Um, and there is absolutely no rhyme or reason as to what is in them. Um, my keys rest in one of the drawers, drawers by the, the um, door. Sorry. Um, and then um, I've got a whole mess of other little things in there that don't make any sense. I've got about $40 of pennies. No clue why I do that. I have a change container where I should just put it right in there, but I just throw it in the drawer because I'm that lazy, I guess. But uh, you can look at somebody's junk drawer. You could look at somebody's medicine cabinet. That'll tell you a lot about them. Um, probably one of the better ways to get to know somebody is just watch them eat. You can learn a lot about a person when you share a meal with them and watch them eat. Some things you don't want to know, but you can learn a lot. You, um, I think one way you can as well is if you just stop and listen to somebody when they pray. When you hear somebody talking to God, you learn an awful lot about them. And while that's not our goal this morning, I do think we get to learn a lot about the Apostle Paul as we look at his prayer here for the Ephesians in chapter 3. You remember... Uh, we learned about Paul that he is scatterbrained, something that some of us are super familiar with. In fact, I use Paul as my uh, ministry model when it comes to this. He starts in verse 1 of chapter 3 and says, for this reason, and then he never finishes that, that thought. He goes all the way through verse 13, and he hasn't finished his initial thought of, for this reason, I, and then you get to verse 14, and he says, oh, let's, let's go ahead. So for this reason, and he goes back to his original point that he had lost in the haze somewhere. For, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So, so he's praying. Why, why is he praying? He gives us a clue for this reason. Well, what's the reason? The reason is what he just spent chapter 2 explaining to us. The fact that that although in their culture at the time, as is true in our culture today, there is a whole host of different cultures and ethnicities and financial things and academic differences and uh, residence differences that create almost like teams. I'm, I'm team white-collar work. I'm team blue-collar work. I am team Carroll County. I am team Frederick County. I am team white. I am team black. I am team Ravens, team Steelers, whatever it might be. And we create all of these teams, and in between each of the teams 
we have created these walls that stand. And because those walls are there, it's impossible for, for people to build real, meaningful, intentional relationships with one another. And in chapter two, Paul says, hey listen, if you're in Christ, that wall that separates Jew from Gentile, that wall that separates black from white, that wall that separates blue collar from white collar, those walls are obliterated. They are gone. And so no more do you have two people standing here when in Jesus Christ, what he has done is made them one. And now he talks about this one, this new creation. It's a people called the church. And it's not a location, it's a people. A people who are fully confident of their welcome, their belonging before God, regardless of their culture, regardless of their background, because they know they have been accepted in Jesus Christ. It's a people whose foundation is the gospel, the declaration of the good news that there is hope, there is peace to be had for those who would rest in Christ, there is restoration and reconciliation to be given to the one who finds themselves loved by Christ. There's a people whose focal point in all that they do is Jesus Christ, whether it is the foundation of their life or the goal and direction of their life, it's in Jesus. It's a people where God lives. God dwells among his people. That's how he ended chapter two. God dwells among his people. And because of that, for that reason, Paul begins to pray. He says, for that reason, I kneel before the Father. When it talks about kneeling, I think many of us are like, well, that's, that's the posture of prayer. But actually, as you go through scripture, what you'll find, there's a number of different postures, and kneeling actually isn't the most common one in scripture. The most common one you find in scripture is, in fact, standing. People would kneel in their prayer times. People would kneel before leaders and kneel before other people, both out of a, uh, a signal of humility, uh, also out of an emotional response of their prayer. And I got asked a couple weeks or months ago, and don't exactly remember who, but asked, why, why, why do you kneel sometimes when you pray? And, and I had to think about it, and reality is, it, it is because of emotion. There's, I'm, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm, there's an emotional response that I have, and and honestly, it should be more based on the humility aspect than it should be the emotion aspect, but that's, that's why I do it. I think Paul here is demonstrating this truly heartfelt emotion that he has for these people. And so he is praying, I, for this reason, I am kneeling before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. What is that? Let me just boil it down to a very simple thing. To name someone in this culture was to demonstrate the ultimate authority over them. So what Paul is saying is, I am kneeling before the Father, the one who has all authority, the one who has ultimate power, the one who is in the position of King of Kings. And I come to his, into his presence with boldness and confident access, which he talked about also um, last week in chapter three, you know, the beginning of, um, it's right there, and I can't find the number, there it is, verse 12. It says, in him we, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So, so here he is. Think about this for a second. And, and, and I'm going to watch your response. Paul, someone who had persecuted Christians, sought to arrest and put Christians to death, working against the cause of Christ, that was his, his mission in life, had done great harm to the early church, 
now finds himself having this boldness and confident access, able to kneel before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Father who has named every family in heaven and earth, and he has got this audience with God. And too often, our response is exactly that. I have an audience with God. I bet you that if I stood here and told you that you have an audience with a famous political figure, the emotion that would well up inside of you might, might be a little different. Or you have an audience with a famous athlete, or a Hollywood star, or a musician. You have access to the one who created all of them to the one who has breathed the breath of life into every single one of them. You have access to the the one true God, and oftentimes we have so taken it for granted that we don't even engage in it. And Paul says, for this reason, I am praying for you to the Father. And here we get to see what, in fact, he is praying, starting in verse 16. He says, I am praying that you would be strengthened with power in your inner being Through the Holy Spirit, I'm praying that you will be fortified, you will be braced, reinforced by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart as he dispenses his power within you. The Holy Spirit, we talked about back in chapter one, how he has sealed us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit continues to convict us of sin. He continues to dwell within us and point us to the truth that is to be found about Jesus Christ. He continues to minister in us and through us. He continues to comfort us in our times of greatest need. So it's interesting, as Paul says, I'm telling you right now, because of this, because God has created one new being in the place of multiple. He's created one through Jesus Christ. Uh, Because of that, I am praying that you will be strengthened in your inner being through the Spirit. Listen, you don't need to be strengthened by eating your Wheaties. You don't need to be strengthened so you can lift a car off of somebody. You need to be strengthened so you are prepared for whatever today holds. Do you know what today holds? See, I think oftentimes we get to the place where things go hard and difficult and take this, this drastic turn we never expected, and then we're like, oh, Lord, would you help us? And I think what we can take from Paul's prayer here is he's saying, now every morning you should be like, oh, Lord, help me, because you have no idea what's coming next. Oh, Lord, help me, because what you are being called to do and what you'll see through the rest of Paul's prayer is you are being called to accomplish a near impossible task, in fact, Based on your own strength and your own strength alone, you couldn't accomplish it. You are being called to carry a great bag of water that's filled with holes. And you need the strength to be able to do that. He's praying not only that you would be strengthened in your spirit, but that, that Jesus Christ would dwell in you. That Jesus Christ would dwell in you. Now think about that for a second. Uh, the question that should follow that is Jesus Christ already dwells in me. Right? It's kind of like, I am praying, Frank, that... Uh, you would put a shirt on. I'm praying that Jesus Christ would dwell in you. What do you mean by that? Well, dwell is a different word than just be in you. Dwell doesn't mean just be in you, just visit, just occupy. Dwell means to take up residence, to live. Um, Imagine, if you will, a young couple who is scraping together all of their pennies to purchase their first home. Anybody remember the first place you lived when you got married? How awesome it was? Yep. I lived in a trailer with my wife when we first got married. Oh, but it wasn't just a trailer. It was a trailer that had orange countertops. 
oh, but it wasn't just a trailer with orange countertops. It was a trailer with orange countertops that had a family of skunks that lived underneath it. And I know how to treat my lady. <laughs> this young couple scrapes together their pennies because they're going to purchase a home. They can't wait. And they scrape together their pennies for a down payment. And they realize, we can't afford much. So they begin the process, and they're looking around, and they're like, well, that's the one we're buying. And the one they end up on is a little rough. Wallpaper's peeling off of it. Um, the carpet's that orange shag nastiness. Air conditioner doesn't work. The boiler doesn't work. The kitchen was obviously designed by a man. It makes no sense. The appliances are that beautiful um, puke green color. You familiar with that? Beautiful. Other than all those things, it's a great house. <laughs> and they're excited. But they know. There's some work to do. And so they purchase the home. They put the down payment on it. And then they begin to work on it just a little bit before they move in to make it habitable. I mean, you got to get rid of that nasty carpet because some of the stuff in that carpet's gross. You got to fix the leaking roof. We can live without air conditioning for a bit. We'll, we'll, we'll go with the puke green <laughs> appliances for a while. We can make the kitchen work. Um, and they get all that stuff, those little things done so they can move in and actually be there. And then as they're there, over the years that come, they slowly start knocking out their punch list. Any of you living in that fixer-upper world like we are right now? What a glorious place to be. Every day, something a little different. We're going to tweak this. We're going to change that. We're going to move this. We're going to do this. We're going to tear down this wall. We'd like to tear down this wall, but then the whole house would fall down. But there's a way to do that. I think that's our answer. We're not supposed to tear it down. But then you start doing landscaping. They put a little addition on the back. And, and after some time, and my wife is... Is, is very patient. She, she is the one who enjoys the construction. I am not the one that enjoys the construction. And so, so at some point down the road, I'm going to look at all of the things we've done to this house, right? We've, re no, no, we've put H back in, replaced that. We've, we've uh, built a hallway. We have uh, um, skim-coated this, and we painted this, and new siding, and new roof. And now it's like, you know what? It's starting to feel like home. I could live here. That's exactly what Paul's saying about Jesus Christ here. That's what it means to have Christ dwell in you. When Christ takes up residence in us, he finds a place that is filled with dated wallpaper, a roof that leaks, puke green appliances, and a whole host of other things that need to be fixed. And he begins fixing them, and he moves in, and it's not at all appropriate for him to dwell in that type of place, but he starts cleaning, he starts repairing, he starts expanding, he starts tweaking, he starts changing, he, he does his work within the home, and over time, our inner being becomes a place that Jesus truly dwells. And then what comes out of us is the very nature and the very character of Jesus Christ. So if Jesus Christ is dwelling in you, not just in you, but dwelling in you, if he is doing that transformative work in your heart, how do you, how do you live? Well, I'll tell you this, it's more than a, a yellow WWJD bracelet. It's more than showing up in, in church every, every Sunday. It's taking on the very nature and character of Jesus in, in, in the way that you live, in, in, in responses, uh, in your thoughts, in your actions. It's it's the humility of Jesus coming out of, your inner, of you in, in your interaction with difficult people. It's, um, it, it's, it's not being concerned about fitting into today's world with, 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 with your take on certain uh, topics. Instead, it's, 
It's being more concerned with what is right according to God and his word. And, and then it's even more than that. It's not just being right according to God and his word. It's also being right and speaking truth in love. So instead of just punching the person in the throat, you'd like to punch in the throat because they're wrong. You point out to them, listen, this is what God's word says, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to work with you, and I'm going to continue to pray for you, but I refuse to dog you. I refuse to attack you. I refuse to demean you. You have been created in the very image of God, and God himself wants to redeem the image that is in you and make you one of his children, and so I'm going to love you through this until that happens. See, that, that's, that's Jesus Christ taking up dwelling in you. It's being selfless with how you serve other people. So has Christ moved in? Or is he just stopping by for a visit every once and again for you? And Paul's saying, listen, because, because you have been created as a new creation, I am praying that you'll be strengthened in your inner being. I am praying that Jesus Christ would truly dwell in you. And then I am praying, he continues, I am praying, the end of verse 17, that you, being rooted and firmly and established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. He says, I am praying that you would be able to comprehend the love of God, which is your, your anchor. He says, you are rooted in love. That's an agricultural term. It's talking about the, the roots of a plant. And the roots go deep, they pull in the nutrients, and they, they actually allow the the, the plant to, to be nourished. It's the tree. The plant gets roots run and go deep and go wide and it gives the stability to that tree. And Paul says this love that you have experienced through God, that is what roots you. It's what firmly establishes you. So Paul doesn't just use an agricultural term. He then goes to an architectural term. He says it, it, it firmly establishes you. This is the foundation of your life. It, and if you build the foundation strong and straight and you go deep enough, then, then there's no telling how tall you can build the building on top of it. God's love has firmly established you so that everything that is added on top of it will continue to grow into a place where it brings great glory to God. Paul says the unseen cause of your stability is the very love of God. And what I want you to do, Paul says, is I want you to comprehend it. Now, the word comprehend is an interesting word. It's not just, I, I want you to be able to sit down with a pencil and a piece of paper and be like, oh, this is the love of God. No, I want you to grasp it. I, I want you to capture it. The word comprehend is an aggressive term. It means to be actively pursuing, aggressively active. You are running after this, and he says, I want you to comprehend what? The very love of God. So that's an easy task, right? I want you to comprehend what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. Now, some people have presented the fact they think, so what Paul is doing is saying, no, so it's the, the length of God's love, how far God would go to pursue you, the width of God's love. See, he loves the whole world, the height of God's love. He wants to elevate you uh, and seat you in the high places and the depth of God's love. See that, that he would um, willingly humble himself to come. He knows no bounds to pursue you. And it's like, that's not the point. The point of the length and width and height and depth of God's love is the fact that God's love is multi-dimensional. And what Paul is trying to say is, you got a lot of studying to do. To be able to comprehend that love, you've got some work to do to capture it, to make it your own. You've got to pour over every 
aspect of it. You need to dig into it. You need to ask questions about it. You need to continue to try to comprehend it, to grasp it, to make it your own. And when you do that, when you study out the the love of God in your own life, and we'll start just there and continue on. When you study out the love of God in your own life and you continue to pursue it and examine it and and, and turn it over in your hands and, and look at it from every which angle, where you land is this. I am a person who has experienced the rich grace of God in ways that I can't even begin to comprehend. In a conversation this week with a couple of guys who were reading through uh, Exodus, and they got to the place after the golden calf where um, the Levites were commanded to kill 3,000 men of the children of Israel for their false worship. That's not a story that plays well in 2022. Oh, look, that's a picture of God. Murder 3,000 people. You can just leave it at that. Or you can try to comprehend what God's doing in that story. And you can wrestle with it. You can turn it upside down and over and around and look at it from all these different angles. And, and actually what you find in that story, I would love, and I'll say this at the onset, I'd love to think that I was one of the Levites that God came to and said, hey, would you kill 3,000 people because you've been faithful and they haven't. I'd love to think that's me in the story. <laughs> I'm one of the 3,000 looking over my shoulder. Because I'm not good at a lot, but I'm really good at sinning. I've been practicing for a long time. Lots of experience. So I I believe that would probably be me being pursued by that. And when you understand that and wrestle with that, what you find is in that very story, what God is doing is he is weaving the story of grace even throughout the Old Testament so that as we look back at it, it's like, man, we could not possibly stand if it weren't for the grace of God. Every single one of us would be murdered for our disobedience and lack of holiness before God. And yet, because of Jesus Christ, this amazing thing happens. You ready for this? I stand before God, and, 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 and all of us do. Every single one of us, as we would stand before God, deserve the very damnation of our souls for all of eternity. Every single one of us in here. And you're probably like, well, I'm not that bad. Yes, you are. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one of us you could stand before God and be like, ha, I'm here. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the love that he had for us, made those of us who were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved. That's Paul, Ephesians chapter 2. What he's saying is every single one of us, though we deserve the very damnation of our souls, every single one of us, though we are sinners, we stand before God, and as he looks at us, though he would see the sinfulness of our souls, instead what he does see is the righteousness of Christ. When he looks at you, believer, when he looks at you, lover of Jesus, he doesn't see your wretched attempts at trying to be good. What he sees is Christ's perfection. The blood of Christ covering your sin and my sin. And what Paul says is, I want you, and I'm praying that you will, do the work to comprehend, to grasp, to aggressively pursue an understanding of this love of God. And then he gives us a little bit of a hint about how that works. So how am I supposed to do this? This is a, this is a monumental task, and it, it's going to sound a lot like 
pieces of last week's message because he says this, starting the end of 17 again, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, length, width, height, depth of God's love. That you might be able to comprehend with all the saints. We need the whole people of God to comprehend the whole love of God. You understand that? We, we need the whole people of God to comprehend the whole love of God. That this relational and community aspect of being a part of the family of God as we celebrate the wave upon wave upon wave of grace is necessary for every single one of us. So, and I, again... I, I won't apologize for being offensive if I offend you with truths, right? I mean, that's, that's wimpy, and I'm not going to be a wimp. Um, but I hope you hear this. Are, are you actually an active participant of the family of God, or do you just like stopping by on Sundays? Again, you can't ask God to, to, to profoundly impact you with his power and then remove yourself from the mechanism that he uses to show you his power, which is the very people of God. So, and that's not going to happen an hour a week, or if I get my way, an hour and five minutes a week. It's, it's not. You've got to be involved in community with other believers. Join a small group. Join a community group. Serve here at the church. Serve with our young people. Serve with our middle schoolers. Serve with our high schoolers. There's all kinds of opportunities, and what happens is what you will find is as you are rubbing elbows with the rest of the family of God is you will gain a better understanding of God's love because you will see it on display in each individual person, and how that works is amazing. So are you an active participant in the family of God? Paul prays that we'd be able to comprehend what is the height, sorry, the length, length, width, height, and depth. That was what I spent most of my time on this week, is trying to get it in order. So I only messed it up 20 times today, so. That we'd be able to comprehend God's love. But then he goes on, he says, I'm also praying, verse 19, that you would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. All right, so now be Bible scholars with me, just for a moment. And just look at that, that phrase. To know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Does anybody see a logical problem with that statement? To know what you can't know. That's like walking into a math class and the prof being like, hey, good news, I have given you nothing but unsolvable equations today. Enjoy your exam. Or just like me walking into any math class, so <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Um, Paul says, I, I want you to know the love of Christ which is unknowable. Now wait, you know that Jesus loves you, right? I mean, yes. Of course you do. We sing it as a little kid, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. But the Bible tells me so. Do you feel like Jesus loves you sometimes? Aren't there days? Um, I will confess this. And, and um, something that I um, got in the habit of saying that I have worked really hard in the last couple of years because my wife talked to me about it, is there would be times where something would, just stupid would happen. And they're like, why don't you love me? That's a terrible thing to get in the habit of saying. 
And so I'm, I'm praying that God continues to remove that from me. Because there are times, though, where you're just like, man, do you, do you really? Because we tend to view the love that we are experiencing currently through the lens of our immediate circumstances. And the problem is, is the demonstration of that love doesn't come through our immediate circumstances. The demonstration of that love we've experienced from Jesus Christ is far bigger than our immediate circumstances. This love that Jesus has for you isn't the throwaway, oh, I love you too, that you might say at the end of the phone call. You, ever, you, you say that to your spouse, you've ever done that? I've done that. I won't even ask you. I don't want to get you all in trouble. I'm just going to, I'm going to eat it right now. Here I go. I'm going to bite it, right? <laughs> there are times where I'm on the phone, my wife, I'm like, yep, love you too. And she's like, I'm not even done talking. But I love you. Uh, or worse, ever said it to a coworker at the end of a phone call? Yeah, I'll get on that right away, Bill. Love you. Uh, <laughs> This is awkward. But Jesus doesn't have just a throwaway love you. <laughs> Jesus demonstrated his love for you that while you were a sinner, he did the unthinkable. He took your punishment. He took your penalty. He took your place on the cross. There's no throwaway there. This is real Love. This is him being willing to leave his heavenly home to take the death that you deserve. This is love where we actually need to be loved. And I think too often as we view the love of Christ through the lens of our immediate circumstances, we are not looking at it as the love of Christ. We are saying, this is what I want because we love ourselves an awful lot. What Paul says is, no, 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 I want you to know by experience the very love of Christ. I want you, as you wrestle with it, as you try to comprehend it, I want you to see the very mercy that has been demonstrated to you by what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. This is him coming on the scene to love you in ways that you will never fully be able to understand. And Paul says, I want you to experience it. I want you to know it. I want you to understand the love of Jesus I want you to understand how he works. And as you dive into the love of Jesus more and more and more and more, what you realize is you need to know more. You need to know more. So, so regardless of what you think, your uh, attempts to, to fully comprehend the love of Jesus Christ will never end in a, a perfectly summarized statement of his love. You will never get to the place where like, I've studied out the love of Jesus and here, let me explain it to you. And that's not going to happen. Your, your attempts to, to fully comprehend the love of Christ will, 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 will only result in this, this precious understanding of an inability to ever fully comprehend the love he has for you no matter how hard you try. And that's a gift. Now, that doesn't mean you give up trying to understand it just because you'll never reach the end of it. Because what we're promised is whatever we do understand, whatever piece of it we can comprehend, is so incredibly sweet that even though it might just be a chunk, it's worth it. It is. How many of you had kids who loved playing in puddles? How many of you still love playing in puddles? It's just something fascinating about a puddle, isn't it? It's just like, this is amazing. To try to comprehend the love of Christ is to splash around in a puddle but find such incredible joy in it. But get this. You want to blow your kid's mind? Bring them to the ocean. They're like, 
puddle, puddle, puddle. What is that? Right? You get to go to the ocean and splash in the ocean. And, and some of you are rookie ocean people. I understand. I make fun of you people. You go to the ocean up to your ankles. And you're like, oh, this is so much fun. Like, oh, my knees got wet. No, no, no. That's not how you play in the ocean. Uh-uh. And I am sorry if I get anybody in trouble after this. But when you go to the ocean, you got to get up to here. Right here. And then when the waves come, you're like, no. No. Now, I've confessed to you, I've almost killed all of my children in the ocean. Right? But that's how you play in the ocean. You want to experience it all. You want to come out and for days taste the salt water that you swallowed. You want your, your ears to do that noise because it's filled with water. You, you want to splash in it and play in it and enjoy it because as you come to understand the knowledge of, of God's love for you and comprehend this, this incredible love that Jesus Christ had for you, the puddle will never suffice. No, no, no. What he, Paul is praying is that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. You will jump into the ocean and be inundated with it. So, so this is going to be a little goofy, but hang with me, okay? And those of you that know me, goofy, it's, it's expected. So, um, Wrestling with that, even that illustration right there about the ocean. We were talking about staff meeting, and uh, by Wednesday I had gotten to the place where you go to the ocean, <laughs> you have a jar, and, and you, the waves are coming, and you just put the jar down at the Atlantic Ocean, and the waves would go, Psh, and it would fill your jar, you're like, I am filled full with the Atlantic Ocean. And I thought, man, that, that almost works. And the staff was like, that don't work at all, man. you got to get in the ocean. You want to swim in the ocean. I'm like, that's it. That's right. You're playing in the ocean to be filled with the fullness. And so, so where that leads my crazy mind to is like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's think about this for a second. Is that available for everybody? I mean, obviously transportation and where you live, that kind of thing. But, but beyond that, could the whole world bathe in the ocean at the same time? And if it did, what, what would happen to the ocean? Right? Okay, that tells you how messed up my brain is. So, um... I'm sure this is accurate. I found it on Google. But the mathematics behind this has to do with volume and, and um, size and all kinds of other things that I didn't understand and did realize while I was using this example this morning, I probably should have dived into it just a little more, but that's okay. I asked the question to Google, so Google, what happens if 8 billion people get in the ocean? What's going to happen? I mean, think about it. Imagine in your head what happens. You get 8 billion people going in the water, kabrunk. I mean, you put one kid in a bathtub and it looks like a flood happened in your bathroom, right? Eight billion people in the ocean. I mean, my anticipation is that what will happen is everybody goes in and the water table just goes, Gabrush! and it's going to take over cities and land masses and it's just going to just overwhelm everything. When in fact, what you find is because the ocean is so massive in size, so huge in its expanse, that eight billion people could get in it at the same time and the water table would rise 0.00024 inches. The width of a human hair. Because the ocean is so immense, it can handle it. And Paul says, I'm praying that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And, and actually makes mention of the fact that this is according to the riches of his glory. You know how vast the riches of his glory are? You know how massive? It is, if the ocean can handle 8 billion people, man, 
how much more the omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, infinite, transcendent God of all creation. You have access to be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Paul's very prayer. He's not praying for little things. He's praying that you would be strengthened, that you would be filled, that you would be overwhelmed but driven to know the experience, by experience the love of Jesus Christ so that Jesus can be seen in everything that you do. And I'm going to tell you, church, that has been how I've been praying this year for our church. I want those things for you. I want those things for me, but I want those things for you. And in order for those things to happen for you, there is no magic switch. There is no magic class. You have got to be aggressively pursuing those things. You need to be taking more seriously your, your love relationship with God. You've got to be more intentional and more desirous to pursue time with him as you study his word. You need to be more humble as you confess your sin and splash in his grace and in his mercy. And as you dive into that, in return, what you receive is the fullness of God. Now, that may seem overwhelming. But Paul leaves us with an encouragement as he closes his prayer. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I got good news for you. I know it feels a little overwhelming. The good news is this. God is able to do. He's active. He's not idle. He's alive. He's able to do what we ask. He hears your prayers. He's able to do what you ask or think. Hey, come on, there, there are some things that are in your heart's desire that you are just not going to say out loud. And, and, and please understand, this isn't Paul saying, so you should pray for that extra puppy. It's far more significant than that. God knows the desire of your heart, and what he tells us is that his desire is even bigger and more significant than ours. His able to do all that we ask or think. There is nothing that is beyond his power. He is omnipotent. He is, he is able to do beyond all that we ask or think. His expectations, his desires are way higher than ours. He can do above and beyond all that we ask or think. He isn't limited by resources. He doesn't measure things by a yardstick. He measures things by his infinite love. There are no limits to what God can do for you. So do you really want to be filled with all the fullness of God? There is nothing that you will find that will be better than splashing in the ocean of the fullness of God. Where are you swimming? Are you content with one hour a week? the drip that comes from that? Are you pursuing him with everything you've got? There is nothing better than pursuing the fullness of God because there's this glorious promise throughout all of scripture. God tells us if we seek him, we find him because he's not hiding. Where are you swimming?
pray with you. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for the grace that we uh, have at, available to us. Thank you for the mercy that you have supplied to us. Thank you for the, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I pray that we would all understand what it means to pursue you. And God, may we pursue you with everything that we have. So Father, I, I, I'll close my time praying here with the prayer that Paul had for the Ephesians and pray this for my brothers and sisters sitting in this room. I pray that God will grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love that you might know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. I pray that all these things may be done so that you, Uniontown Bible Church, may be filled with all the fullness of God. God, I thank you that there is nothing better than to be filled with all the fullness of God. May we seek you with our entire being. For it's in Christ's name I pray.